Welcome to the Live Your Purpose podcast, featuring compelling interviews with big-hearted people in the Oklahoma City metro area who are leading, creating, and innovating on purpose. Get inspired by conversations with passionate difference makers from our local community. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. On today's episode, we sit down with Jennifer Eckert, a development professional, mediator, and committed champion for public health with a passion for serving those in need with hope and gratitude. And now, the Live Your Purpose podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Live Your Purpose podcast. My guest is Jennifer Eckert, who is currently serving as the Director of Development for the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma, which has as its mission to lead a network that provides nutritious food and pathways to self-sufficiency for people facing hunger. Jennifer also offers strategic planning and external grant review services for national grant-making foundations as an independent consultant. For 13 years, she has served the state of Oklahoma in the field of public health. Additionally, Jennifer is a certified mediator with a master's degree in administrative leadership from the University of Oklahoma, a bachelor's degree in fine arts from the University of Central Oklahoma, and an associate's degree in fine arts from Austin Community College. She utilizes her connector skills to address the social determinants of poverty and values faith, family, community, and work. She believes that while help is necessary, hope is essential. Jennifer also serves on the state board for Cairo's Prison Ministry International and is a regular volunteer at Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in Oklahoma. She's a graduate of the Salt and Light Leadership Training Class 14 and in 2020 was recognized as an honoree for the Oklahoma Woman of the Year Award by the Journal Record newspaper. Jennifer and her husband, Doug, operate a home bakery called Grandma Doug's Bakery, and together they have three young adult children. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Charles. It's so great to be here. And my goodness, congratulations to you for your new adventure and partnership with OSU Center for Social Innovation. I've been watching what's been going on. You really have great things happening around you. So congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's really been a wonderful opportunity. And for those that don't know about this, uh, maybe I'll throw that in the show notes too. It's a really cool deal. And I think we have some similar passions and a similar heart. Um, yeah, there's, there's folks that, uh, that need some help there, and it's an honor to be able to be a part of it. Well, Jennifer, we got to know each other a little bit like three years ago. Uh, when I came and gave a talk at the food bank and this was like the annual meeting for all the employees and it was such a fun theme. It was a superpower theme. (laughs) And, uh, and I gave a talk about empowerment and self-care. So do you have some highlight memories from that day? Cause I sure do. Oh yeah. We were so empowered that day. My now husband, Doug Eckert, uh, is, we actually showed up on site that day in costume, as was the <laughs> instruction for everybody. All of the staff had to come in costume. So we opted for Mr. and Mrs. Incredible. And that was the highlight theme of our of our meeting that day. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun meeting you as the Incredibles. And I'm glad to get to work with you as the regular Jennifer. And I almost don't recognize you. I'm sorry. To inter- <laughs> I almost don't recognize you. Where's your mask? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a lot of fun. And that was the name of the talk. It was the superpower of one. And so your characters were featured in that talk. It was really amazing. So. You did a great job, by the way. It was very <laughs> inspirational, and I commend you for your vulnerability and sharing your own testimony. And look, my goodness, look how far you've come since then. I just, I can't wait to see even three more years from now how far you will you will go and make a big impact. Right. I love that. Well, I'm all about it, and I'm going to be following along with you, too. And Jennifer, as you may know, we start each episode with a kickoff question, and you've chosen yours. So I'm going to read that off, and then we'll just see where the conversation takes us. Great. Okay. So Jennifer, what are the struggles and triumphs that have most shaped your life? The struggles and triumphs that have most defined me. So I had to really give some thought to this question, Charles. I had to give some thought to putting the right words to the things that are almost normalized in my life, uh, then in such a way that it could be perhaps beneficial to others. So in terms of Probably from my earliest years, I've had a number of suicides in my immediate family, one of which was my father in 1985. I was 12 years old. And yes, that's dating me. I just turned 48 earlier uh, this week. And from there, if anybody has experienced suicide in your family, you'll know that there's oftentimes a fallout of other members of your family. Those relationships often disintegrate, unfortunately. So while it's a loss and grief of those that chose to take their life, there's a a complete wave of loss that happens after that. Um, my mother was a single mother as a result. She worked multiple jobs, three jobs at uh, one point that I can recall, just to keep the lights on. So sometimes we had ramen noodles for dinner. Sometimes we didn't have power, you know, for our home. Um, I have a son. My marriage at 17 years ended, but I'm grateful for how I learned how to be uh, a single parent. And today I am a step parent and I've got two additional bonus children, which is wonderful. I'm the first in my family to attend college. I've got three degrees, as you mentioned earlier. I've been extremely blessed to have careers in public health and in the nonprofit sector, neither of which, by the way, I ever planned on. My dream was to be a college art instructor, university art teacher. That was my career, my training direction. That was my plan. But clearly God said, mm, no, you're going to go into government. And I think that um, probably one of the strongest uh, triumphs is my walk with Christ that began seven years ago. So most of my childhood, I was not raised. Most of my, my life, I wasn't raised in church. And that has been such a huge impact on me in the most recent years that I've now taken my volunteerism to prison. I work with others that are kind of um, on the fringes of life, trying to figure out who they are, what their calling is, how they can use their mess to bless. And that's really what I hope to do through this podcast. And as I get more comfortable sharing my own testimony to help others learn how to share their testimony to create blessings from their own, their own lives. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for your vulnerability on that, Jennifer, too. Um, I know some of my listeners may or may not know that I have a suicide in my family as well. And I have a personal attempted suicide that I, I had, oh goodness, 25, 26 years ago, that was a legitimate attempt. And, um, and that created its own kind of fallout. 
but thankfully, I did, with lots of help and lots of support and, and uh, finally coming to terms with my alcoholism and addiction, uh, have recovered and Christ is at the center of, of my life as well. So um, Jennifer, and feel free to share whatever seems supportive and appropriate for you. But back in those, when, when things were really uh, difficult, the suicide had happened and of your father and, and uh, your mom was trying to make ends meet, et cetera. When did you notice that you were able to sort of start making sense of your life and, and finding a direction? Because often it can be really, really confusing during, during those years. That's a great question, because at the time, you just put one foot in front of the other. My mother was very independent. She was one that began a career. She had no college education. Well, let me correct that. She would correct me. She had a couple of years of college education, and that's where she met my father. And, you know, she didn't finish college, but she was always a very independent, figure it out, can do kind of woman. And at the time of my, my dad's passing, she was in a career with News 9. She was an early morning news producer. And at the time, there really weren't a lot of women in those types of roles, especially women without sufficient educational background that would even allow them to enter that option. So she would, um, you know, kind of walk with me through the one foot in front of the other, we talked about it a lot. We talked about the circumstances, all of the questions that circle the drain of somebody's mind, the why, the how, sometimes the grim and ugly, but sometimes the where is he now? We talked a lot about spirituality, even though we weren't under the label of any specific religion. I would say a faith of something greater than us was, was definitely always a part of our lives. Um, and I think the the way that I learned to deal with it was really through her leadership, her mentorship. And I know as people don't always think of their parents as a mentor, but understanding the circumstances in which my mother um, came from and her own struggles, she absolutely was a mentor to me in figuring it out, just like she figured out how to make it and how to pay the bills and you know, this will veer off just a minute, but one of the highlights of my childhood was the opportunity to go with her at late at night, often close to midnight, to drive downtown to the OG&E office and drop a check in their night deposit box so that we could get that late bill paid, right? So, you know, that way we wouldn't have any more of those ugly fluorescent pink stickers on our glass door when... <laughs> You know, we came home and that was kind of right. the common place, unfortunately, when you're a single, single parent, and you're trying just to make it. Yes, um, of course. So it was through those experiences, those figure it out kinds of experiences that um, maybe helped shape um, the, the pathway for me post suicide of my dad. Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. And I'm sure our listeners can relate. You know, if you can relate to part of Jennifer's story, I know I can. I see some mentorship quality from my parents and we all have those influencers in our lives. And that, that tends to, to shape our sense of who we are, but also our sense of mission or purpose or meaning about our lives. And it often influences our character quite a bit, you know, and who we become as a result. So that's incredibly meaningful to hear that. 
at, at, so then you, at some point you, you attended college and let's see, where were you first? Were you, you were at UCO first. Is that right? Yeah, I was at UCO for okay. a little while. Yeah. And I attended, uh, I wanted to become an artist. I yeah. wanted to become a famous artist. That was my dream. And well, famous being, um, we'll see how well I can practice. We'll see how well I can teach it. So um, to be a university artist was, in my mind, that was it. That was my goal. There was the freedom of innovation and flexibility. I loved being on campus, the vitality, the feel of, of an on-campus life. So I attended school at UCO for about a year. And then uh, a group of friends of mine and I decided to move together to Austin, Texas. I had never even visited Austin, but one of my all-time favorite artists has uh, had an a, exhibit there at the time. And I thought, well, if they're exhibiting Frida Kahlo, then that must be where I'm supposed to go. You know, I mean, that's just all reason because the logic. So anyway, <laughs> <Right. laughs> we went with a group of, um, there were six of us and we actually, there were eight of us six first, two later join. And we, we moved to Austin. We had uh, a wonderful experience. It was really the kind of the figuring out life on my own experience there. Um, it was almost like its own school, if you will. So while, although I didn't continue immediately with my education, I did later. But I met up with a mentor there. I, it wasn't intended to be a mentor, but I, I began classes at the community college there in Austin for fine arts. And somebody had said to me, well, there's this bookstore. You, know, you might want to go and check it out. There's some great volunteer opportunities. There's a lot of community engagement, some really rich activity that happens there. So I, I visited this little community bookstore and started, <clears throat> excuse me, volunteering, washing windows, mopping the floor, just being present and little did I know at the time the family that owned this bookstore um, the gentleman in particular his name is Raul and, and he has since passed away but he became probably one of the very first mentors that really helped shape the community direction of my life the the professional the community involvement helped me figure out what it is that I wanted to do um, he was incarcerated as a younger person. By the time I met him, he was an elder, but he was incarcerated for a while for marijuana. And while he was incarcerated, the civil rights movement was happening. And at the time, Al Allen Ginsberg, who was a Beat Generation poet, was well on the scene. And so Raul became also a, a poet, but he came, became a poet from inside the prison walls. And he discovered a gift that he had. He was, he was good at this wordsmithing and putting thoughts together and kind of this blend of Spanish and English. And it worked really, really well for him. And, and upon his release from prison, he went to live in the Northwest part of the United States up in the Suquamish nation and took that experience as what he's now become a poet at that point, um, he did a lot of work through the American Indian Movement, uh, became a spokesperson for the movement at the United Nations in Geneva, um, and did, just did a number of things in his early release years that later on in life, here I come following and learning about him, 
what it taught me was resilience. It taught me poetry. It taught me how to utilize the arts as a voice to connect with people. So in his case, his art, his gift of connecting with people was through his poetry. And that then gave license for me to somehow connect with people through my art, because I wasn't necessarily the most articulate, the most, um, you know, polished spokesperson, but I was a good artist. And there was a way to safely express my experiences, my thoughts, my opinions in a way that wasn't offensive, but it caused people to think and ask questions and wonder. And I spent a number of years as the first paid employee of this little bookstore. <laughs> actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really neat place. Um, and I learned community organizing. I learned um, how to write grants. I learned how to uh, really, frankly, take that uh, program to a nonprofit, to take it to nonprofit status. So it really stood as a huge blessing in my formative years that shaped me in the future career trajectory that I never planned on. So, and oddly enough, all of that work there is what opened the door later for a career in government through public health, which is really, you know, the arts and public health are not necessarily things that you see as connecting, but the creative thinking, the difference in communication styles and opportunities, that was a successful win for me. That's incredible. I love that story so much. And so this is completely new to me. Uh, we know each other a little bit, but man, I'm finding out some really cool stuff. Uh, what an adventure and, and coming full circle. And then where you left off here is all of these experiences led to other opportunities that, that you didn't see coming and, and couldn't necessarily predict would have anything to do with one another. Yep. And so just taking a pause for our listeners that are tuning in, I try to give them a, a few uh, moments to reflect. And here's one, you know, maybe you can relate here to Jennifer's story. I know I can. Uh, I had a completely different career field, uh, you know, before what I'm doing now. And I thought, well, I guess that's done. That's, that's a part of my life that that was, that was a lot of fun, but that's over. But it turns out I learned a lot of communication skills, leadership skills, empathy, working across all kinds of cultural and language uh, boundaries or, or differences and really coming to appreciate community for community yeah. and uh, what a ride. And so now I get to work with all kinds of people through coaching, you know, because I can relate better to them as a result, but enough about me. I wanted to get back to how, how these experiences maybe helped you um, prepare for your, your government roles. Is that where you want to pick up next? Yeah. And, okay. and I think it's completely valid what you were saying, though, Charles. I think that yeah. um, what I hear, the similarities in your experience and in mine is really this, this theme of gratitude and hope. And that's what I have now at this point in my life realized that's the, that those are the threads that carried through all of these different experiences of whether it was challenging life circumstances or great opportunities. Some worked out, some didn't. All of that leads to this um, kind of interwoven element of gratitude and hope. And that's what um, that's where we are today and continuing to intentionally build that. So my my work in government uh, after my son was born in Austin, we moved back to Tulsa and I worked for Creek Nation at the time. Um, I had a wonderful opportunity at a Creek Nation Community Center in Tulsa. I was uh, one of the 
maybe first or second paid employee there. And oh, I learned a lot. It was wonderful. Um, but while I was there, other doors opened and I began working at the Tulsa Health Department for a short while. There was a, a demonstration project called the Match Project and it was in the field of tobacco prevention. So at this time, the uh, restaurants still allowed smoking and smoking was just kind of a commonplace. Even airplanes still allowed smoking. And it was, it was a hot button issue at the time. And, and for some people, it still maybe is a hot button issue. But I was fortunate enough to be asked by a community member who I, well, let me back up. So my work in Tulsa, I covered 13 counties in Northeast Oklahoma. One of which was the community of Pitcher, Oklahoma, which if any of the listeners are familiar with the community of Pitcher, they were labeled a Tar Creek Superfund site many years ago and have still, the property still remains that way because it was a mining community in the 70s and they've got big chat piles and chat is another word for gravel if you're not familiar with it, but they've got huge gravel chat piles all over what was a very vibrant town at one point. Now it's um, pretty much desolate. The Quapaw Nation has some activities there, but they moved all of those residents out. And I learned a lot in being with those young people and elders in that community because they had a history of sinkholes falling into the ground. So I would go sometimes multiple times in a, in a week and the pathway that I would take to get to picture from a, one day to the next might suddenly have a sinkhole that I had to be very mindful of. And they built this beautiful new school over uh, what was a potential risk for a sinkhole. And so I asked the students one time that were involved in our tobacco prevention program, we did a mural project, a really cool mural project. And so we integrated the arts with this mission. Absolutely, I saw that. And um, I asked them, you know, why is it in this environment that you have, there's a lot of um, health issues. You've got lead, um, uh, you know, floating through the air from these chat piles. So when families open their windows at home to get the fresh air, it's actually got particulates in the air that creates a lot of harm for people's lungs. And, uh, you know, why is it that you wrap your arms around the issue of tobacco prevention? And, the response that I had from a 14 year old in particular said that um, this young man said, you know, we can't do anything about the chat piles. We can't, that's much bigger than we are, but I'm working for my generation and future generations. We can stop people from intentionally using a product that creates harm when used as intended. So that is really how they grabbed hold of this issue, which was quite controversial, despite all of the environmental stuff around them. They grabbed hold of the tobacco prevention issue, utilizing the arts to raise awareness of the problem, to raise awareness of the Surgeon General's warnings and the other warnings that we knew to be true at this point. Um, and that was something they could actually create change around. So I learned about resilience and finding your purpose, grabbing hold to what it is that you can grab hold of. And that was my entry point into government. These students, we took a trip to the state capitol 
Many of them had never even left the community of Pitcher. Right. And they were so mm. excited to see yellow taxi cabs at that point. That was the <laughs> highlight. That's great. And um, so the opportunity to get to, to venture around the, the state capitol was a first. And then I was able to accept a job as the state coordinator for this program through the health department. Wow. Okay. So they knew what you were up to over there. In the Tulsa area and in Pitcher, and they said we want some more of what you have to offer. <laughs> Is that yes. basically what I'm hearing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was a it was a blessing. I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have had the courage to apply for the position had a community member not reached out directly and said, "You know what? I think you could do this job." And so somebody spoke a blessing into me at the t- at a time when I didn't necessarily have it in myself. So it just goes to show sometimes that little voice of hope that you might lend to somebody at just the right time would really be the turning point for their life and their career. Right. And never knowing how it might be received. You know, I, I always try to assume that, you know, a little seed of hope or grace or encouragement or gratitude is more likely to be received than I think. In other words, is this person really at a place where they can hear me? You know, and I try to let my own perceptions go. So, um, you know, speak some life into people. You know, it's worth it. You never know what that's going to do for them. And we often need a little bit of encouragement from, from others in our lives to help us go to that next level. You know, I heard something recently that makes perfect sense at this time, and it's not my uh, analogy, but I'll share it with you. So, you know, we often think of, grief and hope as kind of this ebb and flow, like this hillside. Sometimes you're on top of the mountain, sometimes you're down in the valley. And there's these ideas, you know, that you're closest to Christ when things are rough and you're down in the valley. And absolutely, that those are meaningful times, as, as hard as they are. But somebody kind of shared a different idea in that hope and grief really are almost like parallel train tracks. So you've got one rail that is sorrow and grief and challenging all of the disappointments in life. And you've got the other rail that uh, is all of the joy, the excitement, the unexpected opportunities. And they run side by side throughout your life. Always you have this blend of sorrow and grief and disappointments coupled with oh my goodness, I didn't expect this. And oh, thank you. What a blessing. And if you look far out on the horizon, those railways converge together into one. And that is where hope lives. That is where we set our sights on not getting stuck in the emotional moment of today, but really setting our sights on the hope of the future and what we can do in our time here today. And with all this messy uncomfortable experience of life coupled with all of the joys, what we can do to create hope in those that are going to come after us. Yes. I love that analogy. Uh, I'm going to use that with your permission. That's, that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And hope is uh, not to, to go too far off track here uh, metaphorically, but the program that I'm involved with it at OSU at Oklahoma state university, Oklahoma city, that's their two um, primary pillars are hope and purpose. Yeah. And so and that's, yeah, go ahead. Gratitude is, is such an integral part of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way that we show gratitude 
differs. First of all, you know, it's a matter of finding that hope in yourself of being able to recognize the sun is shining today. Thank you for the sun shining. Oh my gosh, my legs work today. Thank you that I can get up and walk. Mm -hmm. So the very things that we take for granted on a daily basis that we might have food or that we have friends or people that call and check on us. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a way to use that towards gratitude in pouring a blessing into somebody else. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. You don't need a ton of resources. You just need a little bit of ability in your heart to reach out to somebody and say, Hey, thinking about you today, I hope you're doing well, or maybe send uh, a small gift of food. When I was going through a divorce, uh, so I was married 17 years. And when I was going through a divorce, it was a really, really difficult process because I was figuring out how do I afford my house? Um, how do I make my son's life as fulfilling as possible? And how do I walk through this time of grief and struggle with an element of class and grace so that he learns because, you know, when you're a parent, you're a constant role model to your children. And whether you're a good role model or, or a bad role model, I mean, they're going to soak all of that up regardless. They do. And I had a neighbor across the street was a school teacher and she'll hear this podcast and recognize this story. But she was a school teacher and she had two kids of her own, didn't make a ton of money. But she fed my son and I every day for one year. And I'm not kidding you that every single day she brought over either Ziploc bags that were frozen with stew inside. She had heating up instructions written on the bag. Or if they made a fresh meal that night, she always made a plate for me and Gabe and her son would bring it over to us. That was so impactful to me. I never, I've never had that done for me. And I had to really learn to accept the blessing because I came from a household of givers, but to be a receiver, that was a completely different situation. And I know now that it blessed her by me willing to receive her gifts. I mean, that was not easy for her to do. And I always felt like I got to send her some cash or I got to go. I was couponing at the time just to make ends meet. I mean, I was the queen of couponing and, um, oh, I've got these extra shampoos that I couponed and got some freebies. I'll send some groceries over to her. Uh, But that really was what opened the door to my, what later became my, my faith walk. She walked the talk without pressure, without any of that used car salesman kind of pitch of go to church or else. And um, she just, she patiently walked beside me through my grief. She just was present. Sometimes she didn't even say anything at all, but she would just bring food over and we'd sit on the front porch and just sit in silence together. And that was more meaningful in filling my heart with hope by her actions. And I was so, so grateful um, that now I try to do that for other people. Although I stink as a cook, I'm not the, I'm not the greatest cook. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> not in that way. Yeah, not in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But she, that was a special, really meaningful time and, and defining for me, very defining. Absolutely. I can tell that it is. And what a beautiful story because this was over a, a year long period. So this was daily. This was a daily offering. Yes. 
and receiving. Yes. So there was this relationship involved and, and uh, sitting together, you know, and, and being there for one another. And I'm just imagining that you were probably there for her in many ways too, you know, because it is a relationship yep. um, and the ways that it's, it's really, really amazing when we do the basic things for each other and, and meet each other in just our core humanity. Oh, you probably need some help with food. Here's some food. You know, you probably need some emotional support. Here's some emotional support and those kinds of things. I know in the work that I do and in my work through the church and I've volunteered at uh, youth shelters and done a lot of other things at hospitals and stuff. And just being there for, for those moments when people really are, they have needs that they cannot meet. And to be in that space and, and to understand that and not push it in their face or give them all kinds of solutions and answers or point them in directions, but just be there and ask and find out what they need and then try to give them that to the best of your ability. That helps people more than, than anything else. Uh, I believe it many times, just, just being present, paying attention and responding. Yeah. And it doesn't take a whole lot to make a big difference in somebody's life. And, you know, little, as I, as I look back, little did I know that that experience at that time, you know, hindsight's 2020. So here's somebody that fed me in my time of need. Um, and, you know, I also couple my current career at the regional food bank, not only with that, but uh, in the early 2000s, my stepfather, my, my mother remarried, my stepdad had a terrible motorcycle accident out on the Tallahena trail and in Hartshorn, he hit a mule mm. that was had jumped out of the pasture and he had no health insurance. So um, he went into the neurological ICU for, for many months in Arkansas. They had to metaflight him there. And when he was released from the hospital, mind you, he and my mother were divorced at this time. My mother took him back into her home, hospital bed and all in the living room and reached a point of, uh, you know, gosh, there was no no medical insurance. Does he go back for his follow-up doctor visits? Do we spend what little money we have on prescriptions? She, for him and his behalf, needed to access food assistance provisions. They were able to um, get help when needed. And I think that also was one of those defining moments because today, as I volunteer at some of our pantries, our partner agencies, I recognize that look in the eyes of the moms and dads that they don't want to be there. This is just a tough time for them. They're embarrassed. They hope they don't see anyone that they know there, especially as a volunteer or a worker. They, they really don't want to be the client walking through. I mean, I see that so, so much. And it's a real misperception publicly. I think there's an assumption that those that are utilizing food pantries are maybe freeloading and that is so not the case at all. These are people like me and you and, and exactly my own parents that needed it during a rough patch in their lives. And the food assistance programs were there for them when the chips were down. And I think that was, you know, I never planned to work at the food bank. That was, that was God's plan, not necessarily mine. But I have a story, a connection to it. And there's many, many people in our, in our state that also have had to utilize some of these services 
during a rough spot in their life and they've helped them, they no longer need them, they move on. And now sometimes they're contributors, whether through, you know, a can of food or volunteer hour or whatever. But all of those for me became very defining as I think back to my, my mother that worked at News 9 that also babysat and groomed dogs, you know, just to keep the lights on. And sometimes the lights weren't on for several days in a row. Um, sometimes the water wasn't on for several days in a row. Mm-hmm. And I think of the single mothers in my neighborhood that took me in, that I would bounce around to my friends' houses, that that was just, you just go to so-and-so's house. Well, they also had a single mother that was barely making ends meet. So that was very, those, those figure it out moments for me were very defining and I had no idea. So again, it just goes to show you never know what impact you're going to make on somebody's life either now or in the future. So it serves us well to live our best life, to try to feel the best that we can, even if we struggle, be very intentional to think positive, to give people the benefit of the doubt, even if there's disagreement. Um, I think that all of that is very important in shaping who we are and who's going to come after us. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when we meet people at those edges or in those transitional phases or at those uh, even down and out places, because I've certainly had many of those in my own life. And I've met many other people have been in those places, you know, as a result, because people helped me when I couldn't help myself. And whether that was with recovery or food, uh, a place to live for a while, uh, funding, you know, money, uh, been in all those situations myself. And I think many, many of us have when we're really honest and aren't playing the success game and, you know, and trying to, trying to look good all of the time, but yeah, it's, it's okay to, to ask for help and it's okay to receive help. And, uh, and then when, when your turn comes around to play the other role, then just play that other role. And it turns out life gets better for all of us when we do that. (laughs) Sometimes I think we forget, but it really, it's that simple, you know, just meeting those basic needs, meeting people uh, in their humanity and uh, uplifting them just a little bit. That's, that's all it takes. And just keep doing that. You know, all of us uh, at some point in our life, we're the leader. And at another point, we're the follower it takes both roles. In order to be a good leader, you have to be a good helper. You got to be a good trash taker at or window, window washer, whatever the task is, in order to fully grasp and appreciate what leadership means. And it, it has nothing to do with the job title at all. It has to do with um, authentic kindness and helping people to achieve what their goals are, not necessarily what your goals are, but to help people be the best that they can be through hope and gratitude. Oh, I'm just so uh, thrilled to hear a powerful leader say those words. And I, that's how I see you. And the food bank is very fortunate. And I think they know that to have you on board. And there's other folks there that are doing amazing things too, but you're just sitting right in front of me. So I guess in our, in our last few minutes, Jennifer, if you'd like to talk a little bit more about what you do at the food bank and maybe some about its programming, whatever you'd like to share, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. So the food bank is amazing. First of all, I, I, I can't speak about the organization without talking about the, the gift of the people that I have the privilege to spend each day with. Of course, right now during the pandemic, we're really mixed all over the place. We're working from home. Some of us are working on site, but it is the most cause-driven 
organization that I have ever experienced in my life through all of my volunteer work. And there's a, uh, I mentioned earlier that I do prison ministry volunteer work, and there is a connection. I'll kind of sidetrack on that feed bank real quick to talk about that connection, because as a fundraiser, I realize the funds that I'm raising to help support our Food for Kids programs, which supports thousands of children, multiple meals all through the year, are often the babies of the parents that I'm getting to know behind the razor wire at Mabel Bassett. And while I never cross any sort of line of naming names and making specific connections, it is absolutely clear to me that these moms, as they're sharing their stories of regret, of unforgiveness, mostly of themselves for what they've done for their children and their parents. And, um, and then I get to know the grandparents that are raising these babies. So it is absolutely connected. And as a state and as a city, I'm thrilled to see the momentum being generated today around reducing um, incarceration, particularly those with nonviolent offenses, because it brings people back together. That's a, a wonderful investment. You really couldn't have anything better than to have families back together and whole. We've got a lot of work ahead of us on that. And the food provision is a piece of that. Ultimately, the food bank's goal is to help people be independent, self-sustaining, so they never need us. And that would really be optimal, that they would never need us to begin with. But if they find themselves in a circumstance to need us, like my own parents, back when the motorcycle accident happened, no health insurance, which, by the way, we have a lot of people in Oklahoma with no medical insurance. That is what this resource is for. There is nothing to be ashamed about. There is, that is exactly what it's there for, to help people when the chips are down, they need it for a while, and then they don't. So the staff that we work with, that I have the privilege of working beside at the food bank, have really responded in the pandemic in a, in a huge, huge way. Um, first of all, the food bank is a disaster relief organization. Not only do we do our normal bread and butter food provision through over 1,300 community-based partners, schools, uh, um, shelters, all sorts of different organizations that we partner with, when tornadoes hit or floods happen, we have disaster relief protocols that we follow and we are uh, part of the voluntary organizational um, association. There's a group that, of regional, our, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, in this region that we are responders in those times of crises. And that's exactly what the food bank has done. Not only throughout this last year of pandemic, we also responded to tornadoes, floods, things of that nature. Uh, we provide food for senior citizens. During the pandemic, many of our seniors were terrified to go to the grocery store. So we, we began home delivery services. We partnered with Embark, the Oklahoma City bus system to create a door delivery for certain seniors on those bus routes so they didn't have to go to the grocery store. We provided emergency food boxes at many of the COVID-19 testing centers. So while people were waiting for their diagnosis, their results, they didn't have to go to the grocery store and risk getting other people sick. The food bank was able to provide a two week supply of food um, that kept them fed while they were waiting for that response. All of this really is made possible with the support of the public. 
the, the food bank could not operate without the partnership of the public from the volunteer center, which in non-COVID times um, sees about over 40,000, 44,000 volunteers on an annual basis that come into our facility and sort the food and pack it into boxes that go out to the food donations that come in through major wholesalers and retailers to the monetary support, to the technical expertise. One of the, the things that really helps the food bank a lot are the skills that people bring to support us. So uh, computer technical expertise, um, just all different areas that we are able to collaborate. So it is the most, what I call community owned and operated organization that I've ever experienced. We're a very cause-driven organization. Um, the Food for Kids program is one area that many people are familiar with. So we feed children year round, whether it's through the weekend Food for Kids backpack program, whether it's through the summer feeding program, the school pantries, which are in middle and high schools. We have also a kids cafe, which partners with different organizations that provide student tutoring. We provide the snacks and the meals for that. Um, and then we've got our basic food pantries. So in addition to seniors and children, we've got our food pantry operations. Many are at churches. Regional Food Bank, if somebody finds themselves or anyone in their circle, circle needing food assistance on the website, you can find a link that is rfbo.org slash get dash help. And I'll put that out. Charles, I know you'll put that in the show notes, but that is the link where you can go to plug in a zip code and find all of the community-based pantries across 53 counties that the regional food bank supports. So food is available for anybody that needs it in the time of crisis. And we've seen much, much more need during COVID. People that have never needed any type of social service of any kind before are coming to us. And they're embarrassed and they're uh, feeling ashamed. And I, if any of those folks happen to be listening to this, I, I just want to reiterate, that's what we're here for. We are here when the chips are down for you, just like the chips were down for my family. And when I come across somebody that has donated to the regional food bank for a number of years and may have been donors back when my family needed help, I'm sure to tell them that story and to thank them because it's very well likely that they may have provided the food that my parents ate during their struggle. Yes. Oh, I love all of that so much. I've been a volunteer up at the food bank several times and through different organizations, through other nonprofits I've worked with or through church, of course, um, and with my family. And it's just such a wonderful organization, really well run too. I mean, the food bank is consistently recognized for great leadership and being a big impact to our entire state, not just the metro area. Uh, people know about the Regional Food Bank of Oklahoma, and it's for very good reasons. And I would just echo real quick um, from my perspective. Yeah, if, if you don't have enough to eat, check the show notes. So that just click on the you'll see a link to uh, find out more about this episode. Click down and, and scroll through and you're going to find that link that Jennifer just mentioned. And I'm going to put some other ones down there for you as well, including uh, contact information. Jennifer, did you want to provide some contact information so folks could reach out to you? 
Absolutely. So in the show notes, you'll be able to find it, as you mentioned, but I'm available to be uh, reached through email, which is jeckert, E-C-K-E-R-T, at rfbo.org. That stands for Regional Food Bank Oklahoma.org. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. And of course, my cell phone, you're always welcome to contact me by cell and that will be available. I can't uh, miss an opportunity to give kudos. Uh, so we're talking about the food bank to a couple of leaders. First of yeah. all is Rod- Rodney Bibbins, who is the founder of the regional food bank. If it weren't for his vision and his ambition and his stick with it during all of the trials and tribulations that he had to endure and figure it out, we wouldn't even have this incredible resource, this incredible blessing in our state. So I want to acknowledge him because for 40 years, he, he created this wonderful resource. Um, after Rodney re- retired, we had Katie Fitzgerald, who was our second CEO, and she now uh, runs Feeding America second in command. I can't remember. I think she's chief operating officer. Sorry, Katie, if you hear this, can't remember exact title, but I know that she um, is in a top leadership role. Her, her voice and input is invaluable nationwide. And we love her in Oklahoma. Her family still lives here. We love them. They're part of the roots of who we are. And we're fortunate now to have Stacy Dykstra who joined the regional food bank as our third CEO in October. And she has done a tremendous job. She came from Smart Start, Oklahoma, and she brings a rich background of uh, advocacy for childhood education into the walls of the regional food bank during the pandemic, during a crisis to change CEOs. She has made it very seamless for us. And um, I just really excited for the trajectory that we are moving towards in the future because we will continue feeding people in their current need, but you will start seeing more um, elements folding in that we help people to not need us in the first place. We really want to become that place of advocacy. Oh, that's exciting. I'm looking forward to see those rollouts. Well, in our closing minute or two, Jennifer, did you have any closing words that come to mind for our listeners you'd like to share? I just want to say to those that may be in a place of struggle, um, hope and gratitude. Focus on not the emotion, but hope is, focus on the hope of the future and the gratitude, even if it's the songbird that you see atop a tree, you know, whistling a song to you, find those little elements in every single day. The fact that you've got water that turns on out of your faucet, um, find those elements of gratitude and let that be what rests in your mind is hope for the future, because that's what it's all about. Making today um, better for you, for those to come behind, hope for the future. I love that. That's a great place to end. Jennifer Eckert, thank you for being my guest on the show. Thank you so much. This was a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Live Your Purpose podcast. I hope you've been inspired by my conversation with today's guest. If you like what you hear, please share with your social networks and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Charles Gossett, Life Purpose Coach and founder of Full Integration Coaching. 
To learn more about the life coaching, public speaking, and retreat services that I offer, visit fullintegrationcoaching.com. And you can follow along with me on Facebook and Instagram at Full Integration Coaching. Until next time, remember, you were meant to live on purpose. Start living yours today.